Good morning. My name's Mark, and I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Park. And it's my privilege uh, to preach the Word of God to you today. Uh, I was joking with someone last week as I was talking about my experience preaching at uh, my experiences preaching at Trinity Park. And I remember the last time I preached, uh, there was a sudden rainstorm, so we had to move inside at peace. And I kid you not, that was the fewest number of people I've ever seen at Trinity Park. (laughs) The time before that when I preached, we were at Davis Drive. Uh, The AC broke, so we all moved downstairs to the gymnasium, and Andy, I think it was, ran up to me, and he said, Oh, Mark, you need to shorten your sermon down to five minutes because we're all sweating and dying here. So as I said that to my friend in our community group, you know, we were praying that there would be no other natural disaster today to keep us from uh, hearing God's word. So thankfully we're all here and uh, nothing has happened yet. So praise God. So I want to begin by sharing a story with you about a church that you all know. This church was once planted in a major city by the water. Uh, This city was a place of commerce. It was an international city. It was also a very secular city with a reputation for hedonism. But in this city of intellectuals and upward mobility, a man came and started talking about a humble Jewish carpenter who healed the sick, who loved the broken, was crucified on a cross, who died and was raised uh, to life. Many started to come to hear more, and they formed a church, and it grew to become a great megachurch in its day. But not all was well with this church. Slowly, as sinners started to gather together, divisions started to form. People formed different factions where one group followed one leader, another group followed another, and these divisions threatened to split the church. Some in the church even went so far as to reject their church planter. They sent him letters with questions and accusations, and he wrote back, pleading with them with tears to love one another. Do you know what church I'm thinking of? It's the church in Corinth. It's the church planted by the Apostle Paul. You know, as Adam was praying, it seems like every other week, a new article pops up on Christianity Today or the Gospel Coalition or even this past week on the Atlantic which talks about how the church is splitting and how the church today is so divided, how evangelicalism is breaking apart. And this reflects our society in general, which is maybe more divided uh, today than ever before in recent history. What is our calling in the midst of these divisions? Because these aren't just problems out there or problems in the news, but every church in our area in our country, and including our own, has faced these trials over the past year and a half. And I want to look today at what the Apostle Paul says about how we are to act when there are divisions. Because this is not a new problem. Paul himself, the great Apostle Paul, faced decades of church conflict throughout his ministry. And he has something to say to us in our present moment. So let me just pray briefly for us. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful weather. I thank you that we're able to gather here and hear your word. 
I pray that you would come and give us ears to hear what you have to say, and I pray that you would uh, speak uh, through me uh, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going over the past few weeks uh, through the book of Ephesians, and so far we've looked at chapters 1 to 3. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul provides us with an overview of the gospel. Beginning here in chapter 4, all the way until the end of Ephesians, Paul transitions from what God has done in Christ to how we must then live in light of what God has done. He talks about topics such as marriage, about family, and other things, all in light of the gospel. So today's passage in chapter 4 is the first of Paul's exhortations. So what does Paul say is the first, the very first priority for the Christian? What's the one thing he says about, or one thing he talks about how we should live before anything else? Let's look at what he says. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, Before anything else, be humble, be gentle, have patience, and bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain unity. Paul's exhortation here has everything to do with how we live together as one body. His first exhortation is not about rejecting idols. It's not about turning away from our sinful ways, which he does talk about later. It's not about calling out false teachers in the church, but it's about unity. The main point here is unity. And when I saw this, I had two questions as I was thinking about uh, this passage this week. First, why is unity so important for Paul? Of all the things that he could start with, why start there? And second, how do we do this? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit, especially today when everyone is so divided over so many different issues? So let's think about these two questions together. First, why is unity so important for Paul? Unity is of primary importance for Paul because Christian unity is an expression of the gospel. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What is that calling? What is it that God has done? As I said, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul has outlined for us what God has done for us in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we, all of us, were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He says to us Gentiles in verse 12 that we were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope and were without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace where there was no peace. He has made us both 
one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The good news of the gospel is that he has created in himself one new man in place of the two so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. In this way, God killed the hostility that stood between us. You see, just like us today, Paul lived in a divided world. In Paul's day, Gentiles and Jews could not even eat at the same table. Paul lived in a world in which people saw those who were different from them as enemies. Hostility was normal. Division was normal. But Paul is saying that Christ has changed that. Christ has called us out to become a new people, a new society in which we are both together reconciled to God. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that this is the mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles, the enemies of the Jews, could be fellow heirs, members of the same body. We might take this for granted because we're used to this kind of language in Scripture, but for a first century Jew, it would have been outrageous to think that a Gentile, an idol worshiper, could be a fellow heir. We in the West, when we read Ephesians or when we read the Bible, we often understand the gospel in a very individualistic way. Yes, God has saved us by grace apart from works, but the point is that God has saved us, plural, by grace, not just me. Throughout Ephesians chapter 2 to 3, we hear this refrain over and over that God has brought both of us together into one body. This theme of oneness is central to God's work in Christ. So unity is of primary importance for Paul because Christian unity is an expression of the gospel. When churches in Paul's day were composed of men and women, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, all sitting together, breaking the same bread and drinking from the same cup, they proclaimed the beginning of a new kind of unity, one that had never been seen before. When we today gather in diverse communities with young and old, people from different ethnicities, people speaking different languages, the abled, the disabled, even people of different convictions and people with different opinions or theology. When we can gather together, our life together expresses the truth that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Because otherwise, there's no other reason for us to be together except that we've all been called. This kind of unity shows the world that what's happening here is not man-made, but it's from the Spirit. That's why it's of utmost importance for Paul, because the witness of the gospel is at stake. But then how do we do this? You might be thinking, I agree, and many even in our culture would agree that it's a beautiful thing when different people can gather together, people from different ethnicities. It's a beautiful thing when we can gather together from, in Christian community from different backgrounds, young and old. But I just cannot 
be united with someone I disagree with about COVID or someone who supports that position or that politician. The world today, even as they value diversity and diversity in community, they will not tolerate diversity of opinion or diversity of convictions. And that's what's dividing us. That is what's dividing the culture, among many other things. The world has become more and more divided, and the church is divided because we're learning from the ways of the culture. So how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit according to Scripture? And I want to say that the way we do that, according to Paul, is we maintain the unity of the Spirit by loving one another as Jesus loves. The way to maintain the unity of the Spirit is to love as Jesus loved. Look at what Paul says here in chapter 4. He urges us to walk, first of all, with all humility and gentleness. These words in the Greek for humility and gentleness, these are the noun forms of the words that Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty nine to describe his heart. The King James Version translates Ephesians 4 like this. It says, I urge you to walk with all lowliness and gentleness. As you know, our church has been going through a book study in our community groups and our Bible studies uh, called Gentle and Lowly. And if you haven't been able to read this book, the main point of this book is that in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, I am, low, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And that's the one place in Scripture where Jesus tells us about his heart, about the core of who he is. He is gentle and and lowly. And Paul begins this section of exhortations by calling us to walk with all lowliness and gentleness. Paul says we should be completely all lowliness, right? Completely lowly and gentle with one another. When you disagree with someone, what's your first instinct? Is it to make yourself low and approach that person? With gentleness? Or is it to lift up your own opinion so you can tr do all that you can to convince the other person? So you can show them how wrong they are. The way of the culture is not lowliness, and it's certainly not gentleness. The way of the culture is brashness, pride, self-righteousness, sticking up for your camp or fighting for your opinion at all costs. Those are the virtues valued by the culture. But the way of Jesus is different. Jesus lowered himself and approached sinners. Jesus was not repulsed by what was disagreeable to his holy nature. But Jesus was drawn to our brokenness in love. Paul says, love like Jesus. Be gentle and lowly. He says, be patient and bear with one another in love. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians towards the end of his life, after his other letters, and after he'd been through decades of church conflict, 
So Paul is not saying this as some sort of armchair theologian, but he's saying this as someone who's been in the trenches of church conflict. So I want to uh, briefly flesh out the comments that Paul gives here in Ephesians by looking at how he puts this into practice in his other letters. As I said earlier, uh, the Corinthian church was a divided church. They faced problems of many kinds, and starting in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses a theological conflict in the Corinthian church. In first century Corinth, in the city of Corinth, there were many temples of various kinds where different kinds of animals were brought and slaughtered, and the meat was offered in sacrifice to pagan gods. Some of that leftover meat was sold, and this caused a problem for the Corinthian Christians. Can we buy and enjoy this meat? If a non-Christian invites us over to their house and they serve us this meat that was offered to Zeus, can we eat it? Some in the Corinthian church said, yes, of course. We bought it with our own money. We have the freedom to enjoy this meat. Others said, of course not. How could you do that? And you can imagine the kind of conflict this would have caused in a very practical, real sense. Imagine that you were convinced that it was wrong to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And imagine that you went to your church's prayer meeting. You had a great time praying with your brothers and sisters. And then at the end of this meeting, the host brings out some delicious prime rib that was offered to Zeus. And everyone around you is enjoying themselves, but you are hurt and you are angry. And you let everyone know about it. On the other hand, imagine that you're the host of this meeting. You've used your money to serve your brothers and sisters by buying this delicious, expensive prime rib, and you're happy to serve them with this meat. But then there's this one brother in your prayer meeting whose theology is just so wrong. He's trying to impose his own views his ignorant views on the rest of us. And so, in that way, a community is divided. What does Paul say that the Corinthians should do about this situation? The Corinthians had written him a letter with lots of questions, and this is part of his response. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27, he says this, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So in other words, Paul is saying, it's okay to eat food offered to an idol. But then he says this in verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. He's talking here about a fellow believer who has a different view. Paul says that for the sake of this person, you shouldn't eat what's okay to eat. You should give up your freedom to enjoy prime rib for the sake of this person. Notice what Paul doesn't suggest here. 
Paul doesn't say, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then convince them why they're wrong. Show them from Scripture why it's okay to eat food offered to idols. He doesn't say that the solution is for everyone to be on the same page and to agree. No, he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. This is what it looks like to love as Jesus loved. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says that this way of addressing disagreements is an imitation of Christ. For Paul, Christ-like love is more important than being right. Because even if you're right about food sacrifice to idols, or about the goodness of vaccines, or about how the church should approach social justice or politics or whatever issue, if you don't love as Jesus loved, then you're wrong. That's why Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's why he says, even if you know something is true, if you don't love your brother or sister, then you don't know as you ought to know. And we've all experienced this before, right? Or many of us have. If you've ever been in a relationship before, or if you're married and you're fighting with your spouse, you can have a very right opinion about something, but if you don't act in love, then you know that you're wrong. And we see this same approach to conflict in Paul's other letters. This is not an isolated incident in 1 Corinthians, but Paul, like I said, addressed conflict throughout his whole ministry. Uh, in Romans chapter 14, he gives another example about different disagreements that the Roman church had. In Romans chapter 14, he talks about people in the church who disagree about what it's okay to eat. Some people in the Roman church thought we can eat whatever we want, but some thought we should only eat vegetables. Some in the Roman church thought that one day was better than all the others, but others thought, no, all days are the same. Again, these are weighty theological matters. And I think many of us, and certainly our culture, would say that the way to solve these disputes is to bring your best argument. The way to solve these disputes and maintain unity is to be the loudest you can be, to be the most convincing you can be. Bring the most evidence and show the other side why they're wrong. But Paul, again, presents a different way. In Romans 14, Verse 13, he says, let's not pass judgment 
on one another any longer, but decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. The important point in these disagreements is not convincing your brother or sister, whether verbally or even in your heart, but making sure you're not stumbling them. It's making sure you don't grieve them. This is what it means to walk in love, as Paul says in Ephesians. And we don't usually think in these terms because when we have strong convictions about something, we feel that we are obligated to tell our brother or sister and convince them. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, could have used his authority here in 1 Corinthians and in Romans to settle the debate, to give the final word on these disagreements and tell them who they should agree with. But Paul knows that that's not worthy of the calling to which he was called. Paul says that the obligation we do have is to bear with those we disagree with. He says in Romans 15 that we who are strong or have this knowledge have an obligation not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. In our disagreements and in our divisions, how often do we consider how we can please our neighbor? How often do we think about their good or how we might build them up and not tear them down? When we hear an opinion that we disagree with, we often think in our heart about how wrong that person is, and we create in our hearts a wall between us and them. And we don't want to approach them in love. But the way of Christ means that we are obligated not to please the desire in our hearts for self-justification or self-righteousness, but to please our neighbor, to walk toward them as Christ approached us, to seek to listen and understand, first of all, to walk with all lowliness and gentleness in our tone and in our demeanor and in how we seek their good. Because you see, the differences themselves, even the differences of conviction, differences in theology about these issues, those are not the main problem for Paul. The problem is when these differences cause some to seek their own advantage instead of loving as Christ loved. And how did Christ love us? He who was rich made himself poor on our behalf. He who was strong made himself weak to rescue us. And doing this, brothers and sisters, will be very hard. Because carrying a cross is very hard. Striving to love one another as Jesus loves is very hard. That's why Paul says that we are to bear with one another in love. To endure with one another in love. I love the way the NIV translates uh, 
Ephesians 4, 3, it says, Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's going to take a lot to do this. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Because our unity and how we maintain that unity expresses the gospel to a watching world and to each other. The past two years have revealed that maybe we don't agree on as much as we thought we did. As we see the world around us and the churches around us dividing over so many issues, and dividing in very angry ways, it's easy for us to feel that we need to do the same. We need to draw that line in the sand. Wherever I go on social media, I'm amazed at how Christians are so quick to act in unloving, impatient, and harsh ways, ways towards other believers about, you name it, COVID, racial justice, politics. Brothers and sisters, that's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the cross. The kind of unity that some want is uniformity, where everyone agrees with one another. But the beautiful picture of a Christian community that Paul presents for us is a unity in diversity. Because when we can live together and love one another, even with our differences on these issues, we show the world that what we do agree on has the power to bind us together. That's why at the end of our passage in Ephesians, Paul turns from urging us to do this to the common confession that we share. In our passage, he turns from saying, maintain the unity of the Spirit, to immediately breaking out into this confession. One body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Because whatever we think about these secondary matters, and they're important, we all come together under this common confession, this common calling. As I was studying this scripture and praying this week, uh, I had a new feeling um, about the state of our church and about the state of the church in our country that I hadn't felt in a while. I had hope. Over the past year, I felt anxiety, I felt fear, I felt even frustration and anger at the church and what was happening. But this week, I had hope. I have hope in the goodness of God who knows what our church and the church in our country needs. I have hope knowing that even though the Corinthians couldn't work it out in the first century, and even though we're still trying to figure it out here in the 21st century, God's kingdom is advancing. Church divisions are not the end of God's story for his people. It's not the end of what the church, or what God's doing with the church in America. And what's happening in the church today, when you think back to the first century all the way to today, it's just one small blip in the history of God's 
working through his people. I also have hope because of how I've seen so many of you bearing with one another in love and how our church has tried to make every effort imperfectly with many mistakes to not take sides but maintain unity for the sake of love. Some do want us to take sides one way or another, but for the sake of the gospel, we try to love as Jesus loved. I also have hope because uh, I can't do this on my own. We can't do this on our own. But that's why Paul calls it the unity of the Spirit. It's a new kind of unity that springs forth from the gospel. It's a unity that comes from the Spirit, and it's something that God is ultimately doing in us as we lean on Him and trust in Him and ask Him for help. So let's go to Him now. Let's pray and ask that He would give us the power, the strength to do this here in our church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you that we know that you in Christ have broken down the wall of hostility that stands between us. By the blood of Christ, we, though dead in our trespasses and sins, have been reconciled to you and to one another. You have already made peace where there was no peace. So Lord, help us to live out this gospel. Help us to live out this calling towards Christian unity by being gentle towards one another, by lowering ourselves, by giving up our own rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters, by loving as Jesus loved, even as we lean on your love and as we ask for your help. So please help us and help the church in our country, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.